It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and welcome back to our continuing conversation with Dr. Byron Bridal. He's an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. We pick up the conversation with Dr. Byron Bridal talking about the COVID-19 vaccine as well as the COVID-19 virus itself and how it mutates. Uh, now, though, with all of the variants that are coming around and the fact that this is looking like this may become uh, endemic, meaning mm-hmm. that SARS coronavirus 2 may be with us for the long haul now, it might become like the flu where we're dealing with regular bouts of this. Um, perhaps our vaccine can help out in that context in the future. So we're thinking, you know, maybe in a few years from now. Um, and, 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 but, so one of the things that this touches on is, uh, is one of the issues that we have with these vaccines, the current vaccines, actually. And so, again, ha- having virology and immunology expertise allows us to look at both sides of the coin here, right? Th- this problem is at the interface of virology and immunology. And one of the things that's important to note is that this, this is a virus that is, is designed essentially to mutate, randomly mutate. It's a way for a lot of viruses to be able to adapt to new environments that they find themselves in and, and, to, and to circumvent new pressures that they find themselves under. Now, one of the things that we're doing actually in our vaccine uh, development program is we're trying to better mimic naturally acquired immunity. So if somebody naturally gets infected with the SARS coronavirus 2 and naturally clears that viral infection, they will, that will be because they have mounted an immune response. And that immune response will have targeted all kinds of different components of that virus, right? When you look at it, the mm. current generation of vaccines is targeting a single protein. Yes. Just the spike protein on the virus. It's relatively easy for these types of viruses to change and you know, fundamentally change one protein, one component. But uh, our natural immune response targets multiple components, and, th- and that's largely because a virus is going to have a very difficult time to maintain fitness if it has to simultaneously change multiple physical components mm. of itself. Mm. So what we're trying to do in our vaccine program is target multiple uh, proteins in or on the virus. So ours will actually is, is designed to target three. But uh, this highlights one of the issues with the current generation of vaccines. By only targeting the single protein, we're actually making it relatively easy for this virus to uh, start evading that vaccine-induced immunity. And we're already seeing evidence of that. And so this comes to something that I really want your your listeners to to be aware of. Because, again, there's sort of two types of messaging out there right now. There's the public health messaging where their mandate is to try and look at, at look at the population level, right, at population level health. But most individuals want to make informed decisions for, for themselves or loved ones around them, you know, family and friends, for example. And so those are, are individual decisions. And one of the things that I want to point out is the messaging can be a little bit different between the two, right? And so I, I feel compelled to just put out scientifically um, founded facts so people can make the most informed decisions for themselves. And this is, a, this is an important one. So we already have evidence of a variant that has uh, been able to quite effectively evade one of our vaccines. And this is the AstraZeneca vaccine. First of all, in a head-to-head comparison against 
all of the uh, all of the current known variants of the SARS coronavirus two, except the South African one, um, it performs reasonably well, but not as well as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Its effectiveness doesn't come close to the ninety five percent effectiveness of those other two vaccines, for example. So. This vaccine, AstraZeneca, is more than 50% effective against every variant except the South African variant. And this is what your listeners need, really need to understand. Against the South African variant, so in a phase three clinical trial run in South Africa, where the South African variant is dominant, this vaccine failed. In fact, uh, the published effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine against the South African variant is only 10%. So again, remember the cutoff for approval is 50%. So yes, against all of the variants, it's better than 50%, but against that variant, 10%, meaning it's almost completely ineffective against the South African variant. And I can't emphasize this enough, the South African variant is in Canada. It's circulating in Canada now. Mm. So as a scientist and somebody who works with vaccines, I'm sorry, but I cannot recommend the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. I can't in good faith recommend that Canadians take that vaccine. And I have to emphasize they do have the right to, to not take that particular vaccine. In fact, here in Ontario, our chief medical officer issued a letter to the health units that I was able to, to see and read, and they have admitted in the letter that it is less effective than the others, and as such, people do have the right to opt out of it with the understanding that if they opt out of it, uh, they would uh, may have to go to a different vaccine clinic to access a different manufacturer's vaccine, or they may have to wait until a different manufacturer's vaccine gets shipped to that particular clinic. The fact is, though, that it's not the only variant out there. Yes, you're absolutely correct about that. Um, these variants are, are, are definitely a concern. Uh, again, like I said, it's the nature of this virus to mutate. So it's not unusual. Um, people understand the virology are not at all surprised that we've seen these variants come out. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ontario, you know, you probably saw a few days ago, one of our COVID-19 task forces, you know, declared that it looks like we're entering a third wave. And uh, in terms of, uh, you know, any potential increase in case numbers. And what was important to recognize there is that this seems to be largely driven by these new variants that are circulating. We have yet to be told what is the destination? What is the way out of this? And what is their plan to get to that destination? Because the only thing we were told was way back at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told we're going to lock down. We need to flatten the curve, right? We need to make sure that our hospitals don't get overwhelmed right. so that we can learn to live with this uh, with live with this virus, right, without overwhelming our hospitals. So just get, give our hospitals a chance to adjust to this, right? Um, and, then, and then that's it. But that flattening of the curve came and went a long time ago. What's been implied by the fact that we just continually go through these unending lockdowns uh, is that we are aiming for a zero tolerance policy now, meaning that our goal is to have zero cases of COVID-19. That is not going to happen, right? These variants are, are basically guaranteeing us that we are going to have to learn to live with this virus over the long term, just like we have with the influenza virus and just like we have had to with every other uh, virus that causes respiratory diseases, uh, you know, out there. Uh, an article was published a couple of weeks ago, and this is what I found quite alarming. So I, I started doing some research on this. And an epidemiologist who works at the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control ran, took the phase three clinical trial data that Pfizer had, had generated, and they came up with this idea that Pfizer somehow didn't understand the, the true effectiveness of a single dose of their vaccine. 
And what they did is they took some of the data and they took, they uh, cherry picked one tiny fragment of the data set and then ran an epidemiological model into which they plugged in a number of assumptions. And so this person ran this model and came up with this idea that the Pfizer vaccine was actually is actually 92% effective, a remarkable 92% effective after a single dose. And this has snowballed into the National Advisory Council on Immunization, making this official recommendation to override Health Canada and the manufacturers and their recommended protocol and go to this four month interval. Now there's a couple things that, that you need to know here. One is Pfizer, the researchers at Pfizer. So this, this is not even published peer reviewed data that we're going on here. This model, the results of this epidemiological modeling was published in a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. It was not a peer reviewed uh, scientific publication. It's really essentially it would be equivalent of a letter sent to the editor of the Globe and Mail, for example. Mm. You know, it hasn't gone undergone any critical peer review. So that's where this data originally came from. And it's very important to note that in that same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, the researchers from Pfizer published a rebuttal, a rebuttal to this letter saying, no, 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 this is wrong. This study was never designed to evaluate the effectiveness of a single dose. Mm. It wasn't. And also, we're dreaming if we think that this company didn't realize, you know, failed to realize that their first that a single dose would be fabulous. Any company that had a vaccine that was 92 percent effective as a single dose right. certainly would have had it tested that way. All these companies, they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars into this. Right. Mm-hmm. They, their, their reputations are on the line. They would have put their best foot forward. I can guarantee you, you don't put your second or third best protocol forward into a phase three clinical trial you put the best you you do all of your preclinical research to figure out what is the best chance we have of making this thing work and making it work Mm. well Mm. so it's foolish to think that they didn't already know how their vaccine worked best but nevertheless so they published this it was never designed to look for single dose effectiveness but this is what's been propagated now so on this basis the assumption therefore is if we give a single dose, even if that 92% is, you know, a bit of an overestimate, I mean, come on, who cares, right? This, at least people will be partially protected. And is not partial protection of a lot of people better than great protection in half as many people? Uh, at, at face value, you might say yes. But I, as a scientist, say there, there, we, we don't have proof one way or the other. This is important to note. But people scientists can make assumptions that lead to this kind of decision but there are equally valid scientific principles that lead to potentially negative outcomes and i want to highlight a couple for you david so first of all it comes this deals with the variants you brought up so these variants these viruses mutate randomly so they can adapt to new pressures that they find themselves under in in new environments right so if they find themselves under immunological pressure these mutants, if any mutants randomly emerge that can bypass that immunity, by definition, that is going to become the fittest virus. That is going to become the fittest virus mm. in somebody who has had immunity conferred. Uh, and that, that virus will become the dominant variant in, in, the, uh, in the population. If you want to not give the virus the opportunity to learn how to evade 
the uh, immune response against it, you hit it hard. You hit it hard with, with immunity. That's what we typically do. You don't mm. give it a chance to adopt. Right. So, but on the flip side of the coin, if you want to give it the best chance, you you distribute these vaccines very slowly because this virus needs time to develop lots of, of random mutations. It isn't being hit hard. Um, it, it isn't receiving the lethal blow. This is no different, David, than what we have experienced over and over again with antibiotic resistance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you go to, if you have a pathogenic bacteria, right? Say you have a strep throat, that's caused by a bacteria, severe strep throat. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa with my guest, Dr. Byron Bridal, an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. And this is part two in a series of conversations I had with Dr. Byron Bridal. Let's get back to the conversation. You want to give this uh, bacteria the death blow. So you don't want to use an antibiotic that doesn't kill off all of that bacteria, right? So you find the most effective one. Mm. And then the other thing you do is you apply that effective antibiotic and you take it for the the full course of the treatment regimen. A physician will often tell you, you're going to feel much better after three to four days, but do not stop taking this antibiotic at that point. We have to completely kill off this bacteria because if we do not, we are going to have a good chance of selecting for those rare variants, right, Mm. that can evade the the effect of this antibiotic and that is exactly how antibiotic resistance uh, appears because we use either the wrong uh, therapeutic agents like in the context of vaccinations i would argue we use poor quality vaccines and we start playing around with the dosing regimen right if you give only half of the doses if instead of taking the antibiotics for 10 days you only take them for five we're going to help promote these antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And that is why we have this huge problem now. We have to shut down surgical wards, et cetera, because of the, the, the presence of these multi-antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria that are circulating in our hospitals. Mm. And it's no different with these vaccines, David. We can't play around with this. Like I said, we need to go with what the scientific evidence says. So this is very important, David. This is cutting edge. A, ger- a group in Germany has just posted online a scientific study that they are trying to get published. Now, one of the things that bugs me in one way is we're, this is new during this pandemic. We're seeing all kinds of scientific studies being posted online before they have gone through the peer review process. So I will admit this paper has not undergone peer review yet, and it hasn't been accepted for publication uh, in a journal yet. But they have post at least they have posted their data for the world to see. Now, I'm a scientist. I regularly get asked to review. I, I, I serve as one of the peer reviewers for many of these scientific articles. So I have conducted my own peer review. And although my personal recommendation for this article would be I'd like to see I would like to see uh, minor amendments and better explanation of certain things. But I feel the core data set seems very strong in this particular paper. And this is what it says, David. This is very important. It is a study where they looked at the Pfizer vaccine. And they, they looked at, because they recognized that more and more countries were asking the question of, is there evidence to justify extending these intervals? This group did just that. They studied this. What they found is that a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine and the vast majority of uh, human patients that they looked at did, were not protected. Not protected. They did not develop uh, protective neutralizing antibodies against the SARS coronavirus 2 after the first dose. Mm. 
And therefore, the conclusion was you need to give that second dose when it's supposed to be given because they will not be protected until after that second dose. And what would, and so when you go to the uh, end of the paper, right, where they draw, what is the take-home message? Their take-home message for the Pfizer vaccine is do not play around with the interval. Do not lengthen it at all because our data shows that people will not be protected by the Pfizer vaccine and let, until they get that second dose, so it has to be given three weeks later. Every day that you delay that, you're leaving that person a day longer without protection. Right. So this is something as scientists we have to take very seriously. So for the first time in this debate, scientists can argue in favor of a longer interval if they want and not have empirical data for it. Right. I have shown you I can make arguments that show why we have to stick with the uh, the, the, the approved uh, protocols, because there might be negative consequences if we don't. And so on that basis alone, scientists were saying, therefore, since we don't know mm -hmm. what the real outcome is going to be of this, let's stick with what we do know. Scientists right. have to stick within the realm of knowledge and that's backed up by data. So mm -hmm. we know that the three-week interval for the Pfizer vaccine will confer 95% protection. We have no idea what's going to happen when we lengthen that interval because it hasn't been looked at. Now, with this new information in hand, we can actually say now there is actually empirical evidence that seems to prove that it will be dangerous to Canadians if we extend the interval of the Pfizer vaccine. I can't emphasize this enough, David. So based on this, I also cannot, uh, you know, sleep at night if I were to do anything other than recommend that Canadians, if they're receiving the Pfizer vaccine, get the second dose three weeks later. And this is really concerning me. So, David, I have several family members now who are in the crosshairs. This is why I appreciate being able to talk to you about this today. I have a family member, quite elderly, who went to get the Pfizer vaccine. They were asked to consent to receiving the second dose three weeks later. They were then given the first dose. They were then issued, upon leaving the clinic, a card with the date stamped on it to return for the second dose. And the date was three weeks later. So this was before this recommendation was made. Uh, and so apparently there's no grandfathering in. Mm. Because this individual was then received a phone call saying, although you consented to the three-week interval, and although you were scheduled to come in three weeks later, we are not going to honor that anymore. You're going to come in four, four months from now to get the, the vaccine. And I since have had two other family members who have gone to get the vaccine. And they also have been told this. Uh, but what's, what's also interesting, David, is so the Ontario Ministry of Health, this, this mandate was started March 11th, and it now states that it will be a four-month interval, uh, but they backdated it. They backdated the document to say it was effective March 11th. Uh, but the problem is, so these other family members, yes, the recommendation had come down to the health units, but the consent information that they were working with was still stating a three-week interval. And this is what, what is really honestly driving me nuts right now, David, is I have been seeing people consenting and, and, and being shown paperwork that's asking them to consent to, give informed consent to a three-week interval. Now, even though the government has changed the, the current uh, paperwork, so now people going to the clinic will be properly being shown paperwork that's asking them to consent to the four-month interval, the reality is a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this. They recognize that there is not empirical data 
to support this extension. So people receiving this Pfizer vaccine may be left completely under, not partially protected, like we're assuming, but unprotected. Mm. And I don't understand, David, I do not understand why. So if you ask the Ontario Ministry of Health, yes, they will say, we want you to get a four-month interval. But if you ask Health Canada, if anybody asks Health Canada, what is your recommendation for the interval for this vaccine? They will tell you three weeks. They can only tell you three weeks. They're legally obligated to tell you three weeks. The reason is we have that in place to prevent Canadians from being experimented with. So essentially, David, what we're dealing with now is we're dealing with vaccines that were already being used as per Health Canada's um, protocol in an experimental fashion, right? And there's emergency rollout. Now we're taking these experimental vaccines and we're using them in completely novel ways. And I don't understand why somebody who says, I simply want these vaccines given to me as per the protocol that both the manufacturers and Health Canada have approved, why they can't have that done. And David, I have been receiving phone call after phone call after phone call and email after email asking me because I'm an expert on COVID-19 vaccines. Yes, I'm an expert on COVID-19 vaccines. But they're asking me, how can I make sure that I get these vaccines simply at the recommended interval that's been recommended by Health Canada and the manufacturers? Mm. And my answer is I don't know because that's not my area of expertise. I can't go into these clinics and make anybody give somebody their second dose at the, at the Health Canada prescribed interval. But as you just heard from the science, there is reason to suspect that this could actually be dangerous and backfire on us. No, I understand also uh, uh, from from some of the material that you sent over um, regarding the rollout of some of these vaccines that certain areas of the population are going to be given it within the time frame. I believe long term care homes, uh, I believe uh, indigenous communities, etc., as it is recommended. Great question, David. I, I, I honestly don't know how to answer that. Okay. That was the recommendation, and that was the recommendation um, some time ago. Now, certainly, if, Dr. Bridal, everything that you're saying raises so many other questions. You know, the AstraZeneca vaccine, how this now could become endemic and probably will be. But you also talked about natural immunity. And also you addressed about who we should maybe be focusing the vaccines towards. But I also think about the situation that Canada has been put in because we no longer have that ability to manufacture our own, our own vaccines. And that's another question, I guess. And hopefully that now that Canada is, I think, starting to work towards that, that we may have that ability in the future. But, you know, this last year with COVID-19 has has thrown the the world into a a definite tailspin for sure. And you mentioned how it seems like we're kind of scrambling to some degree, trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And and I'm pretty sure everybody's working to the best of their ability to try to to work with the best of intentions as well. However, it, it doesn't mitigate the fact that we do see these variants. And as you say, that's quite a natural process that that is going to happen. In, in regard to the, the natural immunity that we're seeing and regard to this, va- this virus in terms of if it's endemic, how, how does it shape up in terms of, say, the regular flu virus that we see going around year to year? Uh, yeah, yeah, you touched on some, some great things there, David. Just before I, 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 I um, answer your question about the uh, influenza and, and, and the endemic nature of the SARS coronavirus 2, I, I just want to touch on something you talked about. That was the, the vaccine manufacturing. So, indeed, we have been criticized in Canada for allowing that infrastructure 
to, to dissipate. We were actually leaders among the world mm-hmm. uh, back in the 70s in, the, in that area, remarkably. Um, but I just want to point this out. I don't want to draw any conclusions. But again, just just facts, right? Um, I have some some serious scientific issues with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The other interesting thing is, you, you may not be aware, but we actually have some manufacturing infrastructure for that particular type of vaccine. So unlike the 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 Pfizer-Moderna vaccines, which are based on what we call messenger RNA mm-hmm. technology, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a virus. It uses a, um, a attenuated cold virus, actually, which in and of itself can't cause disease, as a Trojan horse, essentially, to, to deliver a piece of the SARS coronavirus 2 into a person's body and to stimulate an immune response. So this is what we call a viral vector vaccine, and we actually have some manufacturing um, uh, infrastructure for that. Not a lot, but some. Uh, but interesting enough, so so when can you know that leads to the idea then that that by using this vaccine, uh, that also helps like maybe appease the, the Canadian public from the viewpoint of you know look we we now we have a vaccine for which we do have some internal manufacturing capacity and therefore perhaps some internal control. Interestingly enough, uh, but again, unfortunately, it's not to me the best player out there on the market. So getting back to to your question though, but your main question about the. Uh, influenza viruses, yes, the, the, the coronaviruses do not mutate as rapidly nor uh, to the same degree as the influenza viruses. Um, so this virus will almost certainly become endemic, but again, not to the same extent uh, as the influenza virus. So, so we probably won't be dealing with, you know, ongoing emergence of fundamentally new variants on an annual basis, you know, as we move forward. Um, and I can't predict exactly what the timeline would be, but maybe, you know, we do need a new vaccine for the flu every year because it does change so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we maybe need, will need a new vaccine um, if we don't get a more universal type of vaccine. And all of these companies, all the researchers for sure are working on next generation vaccines. Now, I would say the next the next generation vaccine, the easiest one to make, which is, I would argue, is just kind of a Band-Aid solution, would be to go back and take these vaccines exactly as they are and just simply change the spike protein to the new versions of the spike proteins, right, with these variants that are coming out. I would say that would be that would not be far, a far-sighted solution because that will then protect against, you know, the new generation of variants, but it's probably not going to protect against the next generation of variants, right? Mm, mm. Uh, So I would argue we actually need vaccines that better mimic naturally acquired immunity. And this is where the two uh, link. Therefore, it might be that we need, if we don't get a good universal type of vaccine, we might need uh, more of these custom-made vaccines that are targeting the new versions of spike protein, for example, maybe every few years. Right. It's, it's probably not going to be every year. It's probably we're probably not going to be dealing with like an annual mm. SARS-CoV-2 cycle. It'll probably be longer. Uh, but with that said, um, people who have naturally acquired immunity, there is good evidence as well in scientific literature that it is long lasting and that it is protective. More importantly, our, our immune system is, of course, is naturally going to respond to all kinds of components of the virus. So we call that broad immunity, right? And we've already talked about this. The vaccines right now we're using, the first generation ones, confer very narrow, narrowly focused immunity on a single protein. Natural immunity is very broad. So that type of broad immunity, in theory, should be more protective against variants. Um, and that's because those variants, yeah, they may change their spike protein, but 
chances of them changing all of the proteins that a person is naturally responded to is highly unlikely. Now, this protection might not be, it might not be complete protection, but we're also looking at this with the vaccines. Most of the vaccines we're using right now, we don't have any evidence that they're conferring sterilizing immunity. In many cases, the vaccines are simply blunting the severity of the disease. Mm. So naturally acquired immunity, um, we may have new variants that can partially circumvent that. So, so people might be able to get infected in the future with novel variants. But those novel variants are going to have a very hard time of causing severe disease because of that broad-based immunity that's there. It will at least be partially protective. Time for a break here on Moment of Truth. Don't go away. When we come back, more of our conversation with immunologist Dr. Byron Bridal right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and our special two-part conversation with Dr. Byron Bridal, an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. We pick up the conversation talking about immunity. So what's interesting is we have done a terrible job in Canada of tracking naturally acquired immunity, right? Um, and most of the tests, the antibody tests, so there's a commercially available antibody test you, you can go to. You go to Life Labs and pay, I think it's $70 to get a test done. That doesn't include the cost for the blood draw. That's mm. You have to pay for that in addition. Uh, and they will look for the evidence of antibodies against a spike protein. Mm. Now, the test that looks for antibodies against a spike protein is not particularly sensitive. Um, there is a, a scientist, Dr. Stephen Pellick, at the University of British Columbia, who has developed what I would say is the most comprehensive and sensitive test to look at immunity against the virus that, that I have seen so far worldwide. Um, and what's interesting is they have data that they're um, uh, just about to try and publish, uh, but that I've seen that's very interesting, where they have taken this test, and it looks at uh, immunity against all the different components of the virus. So it's a very comprehensive test. So they can look for immunity conferred by the vaccines, but also naturally acquired. And in fact, it's interesting, this test can differentiate between the two because if it's vaccine-induced, you'll only see immune responses against the spike protein. And what they have found is actually very interesting. They have done extensive testing in British Columbia and their data, they have randomly tested healthy adults. And their data suggests that between 50 and 60% of healthy adults in British Columbia right now have evidence of immunity against the virus, against SARS coronavirus 2. This is very encouraging. We would argue that that uh, frequency of immunity would probably be higher in children simply because for two reasons. Many of them have been back to in-person learning and that facilitates spread of the virus as much as we like to think that the two meters distance and masks, you know, prevent that. It, it slows it down, it reduces it to a certain degree, but the virus does not respect those those measures. If we really want to be protected, we have to wear the proper equipment that we that would be worn in, in one of our containment level three facilities, because this is a containment level three pathogen. So let's be clear on that. So among children, this has been circulating, more so than among adults. Uh, and because not only have they been to uh, back to in-class learning, but because they also because they're children, right, uh, don't tend to follow a lot of the policies as carefully as we do. For example, they're not going to be as aware, young children aren't going to be as aware of what is a true two-meter distance. Most adults don't really appreciate what two meters really looks like. So it's probably even higher among them. So this is good news. We actually may be closer to naturally acquired herd immunity than we ever appreciated. We haven't bothered looking at this in Canada, right? But we have been living with this virus 
for over a year now. And again, we're dreaming if we think these masks that we wear stop uh, completely the spread of this virus. It doesn't. Uh, but what this also becomes important then, David, is is exactly what you're pointing out. I, I was actually, I, I was in a conversation in a, in a, a national um, meeting that was held, and I had the opportunity to talk to the, the chair of the one of our COVID-19 task forces. And interestingly, the I, I, I posed the question, with, with vaccine doses so limited, why wouldn't we use a test like this? So this, this, this individual, they are working hard to get this, try to get this test commercialized. They feel that they will be able to get it down to a point where it'll cost $20 per test. So again, put that in perspective with the Life Labs test, which is $70 mm. plus the cost of a blood draw. So that's reasonable. And if this kind of test were done, one of the things we're arguing is if somebody already has evidence of immunity against the virus, because like you said, what, what, what is the reason, David, that we've all been given for playing around with these protocols? The reason we've been told is because it's going to allow more people to become at least partially immune, right? Faster. Mm-hmm. So we, we have tests right now that can tell us if people are at least partially mm-hmm. immune. Mm-hmm. So think about it. If you have a, a precious, rare dose of a vaccine, and you have two people sitting in front of you, and you run this test, and you find that one has evidence of immunity against the virus, and one has no evidence of immunity against the virus. I think it's common sense which one of those two individuals that dose would best be used in, right? Right, sure. Yeah, we are not applying this to to this. That is one of the ways that we could make best use of our limited number of vaccine doses. I was shocked because the chair of this committee, when I suggested that, told me, oh, well, that would be too logistically too difficult and that would be expensive to start doing testing ahead of doing, you know, a vaccine. Mm. I think it really, I, I work in an area where I have to routinely get tested. I, and so do my students at the university here. We cannot go, for example, into our post-mortem room unless we have protective titers against rabies virus, mm. right? Because that's a very dangerous, potentially very dangerous, infectious, infectious agent. Right. But we, we do not just automatically get vaccinated every year. Never. We will not be vaccinated until we have been tested. We are tested to look for evidence of pre-existing immunity. And if our titer drops below, if our antibody titer drops below a certain level that has been deemed to be that protective cutoff, then we get revaccinated. Mm. I mean, we have lots of examples where we test people before giving them a vaccine. So why, with all of the money that's been thrown at this pandemic, you have to understand, David, and your listeners have to understand, our federal government is spending almost $1 billion per day that was never budgeted for this on our COVID-19 lockdown measures. A mm. billion dollars a day. Surely we can find some money, you know, to test and figure out who strategically needs those vaccines the most. Mm. Right. All good points. All very good points. I just want to go back to the AstraZeneca for a moment because, uh, you know, you, you pointed out about the about it's ineffective against the African strain, uh, but it is effective towards the other ones. How many variants are we are we now familiar with that are circulating? I've actually lost track. It's interesting that you um, uh, mentioned that because it was actually an article came out today citing sort of the chaos that's occurring right now around the naming of all the variants, Mm. identification of all the variants. Mm. And essentially what it implies is that um, because the science around identifying these variants and looking for these variants is advancing so rapidly 
this is what often happens in science. At some point, you know, scientists have to sit down and come up with a common nomenclature system that can be used worldwide. So, so we can't really definitively answer that because there, there may actually be some variants out there that are being given different names in different countries, but they're actually the same variant. I see. Uh, we also know that as we um, carefully evaluate and look for these variants, new variants are being found um, uh, on a regular basis. So uh, it's really hard to get a, a, a firm number. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago where we were all kind of in agreement that there were, were at, least, at least four major variants. So you think about it, um, one of the first ones that came to light was actually uh, the variant that came out of mink. You might recall right. that one. Yep. Uh, that was a big story because we learned that mink can be a reservoir for this virus, yes. readily yes. infected. And while in the mink, the, the, the virus can change. And there was a new variant that developed in the mink that uh, got back into the human population, right? So that was kind of our first real evidence. Right. And then the, after that, the, the next one was the UK variant. Um, and then the next big one after that was, in fact, the South African variant. And again, that one, because of the effect on the AstraZeneca, the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine has been a, a primary focus. Uh, but since then, it, it, the, the number of variants is starting to explode, it appears. Mm. And now, so I, I just want to go back to that again. So even though it is ineffective against the South African variant, would it not be then, people might argue, say, well, it's worth getting the AstraZeneca vaccine because it protects against you know, 95% of the other ones. Uh, yeah, that, that, and that's the choice that they need to make. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that, that is a valid argument. But again, I would argue, uh, though, that it should be administered according to the best protocol. Now, that, that one's interesting because originally that one was being used, I think it was at a six-week interval, um, and now it's being recommended at a 12-week interval. I have no problem with that extension interval, David. The reason being is that was formally tested and the 12 week interval was actually shown to be better. It is equally safe and actually more effective. Mm. We have hard data to justify that. So there's a case where a lengthening the interval has been done in the proper scientific way. Mm. Uh, so you're absolutely correct. Um, now with that said, uh, David, yes, it, it is not effective against any of the variants as effective as the other vaccines, but yes, there is evidence that it confers protection, but the point being that they, those individuals need to be aware that it, it does not seem to be particularly protective against the South African variant. And I just like to reiterate that that South African variant is in Canada. Um, and so they just need to be aware of that. They would, in theory, still be relatively susceptible mm. to the South African right. variant. And the other thing is that you mentioned how it might not, we might, we might not, as we learn to live with this as, as an endemic virus, uh, we may not need to get uh, a yearly vac- vaccination because it may not mutate as quickly, but it seems to be mutating very quickly at this point in time. Well, yeah, because it's, I think because it's so prevalent, of course, right, mm-hmm. worldwide, spreading right. so much. Once that right. starts getting under control, right. um, and, and as we start approaching herd immunity, that will happen, right? It'll become much more difficult for this for this virus to be able to develop these variants. Because remember, this the, the, the way this these variants occur is through random mutations, mm-hmm. and so there's two things that contribute to that. Uh, one is time. So the more time there is, that the more potential there is for a fundamentally new variant to appear. Um, but the other thing is also the prevalence, right? Um, every single time this virus replicates, uh, it has the potential to develop a, a new version, a fundamentally new version of the virus. Um, so obviously when it is spreading right now and actively uh, propagating on a global scale, 
uh, that, that definitely increases the potential for variance, yes. But once we get through this initial phase, now, this is the interesting thing, David. So a lot of people have argued, right, that, that you know, in retrospect, you might recall at the beginning of the pandemic, some countries were, found themselves under, under fire, right, because they were arguing that, you know what, we, we think, you know, a lot of our experts are telling us that if we don't go into these strict lockdowns, that this will spread through our population. We'll have a hard go of it for, for a few months, but mm-hmm. then we will uh, develop naturally acquire at the population level, right. a, good, you know, a good level of herd immunity. And we will have saved our economy by doing this, right? Um, now, they were, they were heavily criticized for that. Uh, but the reality is um, that places that did that might actually found them, might find themselves now in a better position overall, right, mm-hmm. as these cases go down. Now, the other, and the other thing I want to point out, David, is is the, the we keep hearing about these cases, right? And so this is what people are concerned about, cases all the time. But again, I can't emphasize enough. Again, our government has done a really real disservice to Canadians and I think has really contributed to a lot of the fear that that uh, Canadians have experienced. And that is because we have failed to define, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to define the nature of these cases, right? I always point out, again, that the a case of the common cold, right? If you have somebody has a common cold, that technically is a case of an infectious respiratory disease, but nobody is scared of the common cold. It, it right. merely causes, you know, an inconvenience for most of us for a few days, right? Um, we have to understand that with all these cases we're seeing on a, on a continual basis, uh, and especially now, especially now compared to the first wave, the majority, the vast majority of the cases are mild, right? I mm-hmm. really wish we would start focusing on that aspect as well. Uh, the, most of the cases we're, we're seeing right now are not lethal cases, not potentially lethal cases. The other thing is a lot of physicians will tell you is they've developed some pretty effective strategies as well for treating um, the severe cases. So so this is becoming uh, less of an issue. And that's why I would argue, David, your, your questions are, are insightful and great. And we do have to learn to live with this virus like we do with the influenza. And I would say that we are it's starting to appear like it, it can be feasible. Mm. We, we, we probably are relatively close to achieving, uh, you know, approaching herd immunity. Most of the cases now are, are mild. Um, there are, like I say, good treatment strategies for, for uh, a lot of the people that get more severe disease. And we need to start uh, getting out of this, right? Uh, figuring out the path back to freedom, back to living <laughs> normal lifestyles and, and living with this virus. You are listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. You can also listen now on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app and search 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, take us with you anywhere you go. You can also listen on one of your favorite podcast platforms, and we also welcome those listeners on other radio stations now carrying Moment of Truth. My guest here on the show today is our returning guest, Dr. Byron Bridal, and he has been on the show a number of times. We welcome Dr. Byron Bridal back as an associate professor in viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. We are talking about COVID-19, immunology, and the vaccines. Let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Byron Bridal right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now, you pointed out this, this severity of uh, and the numbers. 
and you you talked about some of the areas that may have been arguing the lockdown and, and opening things up. Of course, south of the border, some of the states are doing that. Do you have any uh, numbers or, or any data that shows what is happening in regard to that herd immunity as it develops, as you say, so that, that people are, are starting to uh, get closer to that, that threshold of herd immunity so that it is less severe in in the overall community that it's not putting a strain on on either the health system and or getting their economy back to you know back functioning well there, there, there's been, yeah there's been some evidence of, of that in some countries right so yeah, the united states is a good example where they were uh, highly criticized for not following um you know carefully for not implementing and carefully following a lot of the lockdown policies and they had the disease run rampant and a lot of their population. And again, it's really hard to tell with how the statistics come out, right? Because again, the vast majority of those statistics were based primarily on cases, right? Mm. The number of cases. Mm. And so it's very hard to gauge um, when you don't know how severe or, or, or the lack of severity of these cases. Nevertheless, though, uh, like you point out, a lot of these states, a lot of these states that were hardest hit, are now, you know, uh, returning to much more normal type lifestyles than we have here in Canada, right? So they were heavily criticized at one point, but it kind of demonstrates this principle. Uh, David, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting, right? Because as immunologists, like this is why we have immune systems. Uh, this, we, this, is, this is not new, right? We, we have been dealing with, with emerging infectious agents as long as people have been around, right? And that's why we have immune systems, and these things will naturally run their course, and we will uh, learn to live with the viruses. Um, now, and another good example is you, there are other countries like India is an interesting example. Well, well, Sweden is an interesting one as well. They largely resisted this this move towards lockdowns, uh, and and they seem to have fared okay without their economy being destroyed. Now, a lot of people look at them and say, "Yeah, well, they're." They aren't. They don't tend to have as dense, you know, populations as we do in North America. With you know these oh, so many huge cities with lots of people crowded into them, uh, they spend a lot more time outdoors. They typically, quotes physically distance, anyways. Right, all these things. There's so many other variables that makes it difficult to evaluate. But the reality is, they their economy has not been affected nearly as much as ours has, and they seem to have been okay with that approach overall. Um, India is an interesting case where, in many places in India. Now, they seem to be better off than we are in Canada. Um, and, and, and that's an interesting place because, you know, some countries, it doesn't matter how strict their policies are that they try and impose. If you're dealing with large populations of people who are unable, they don't have the infrastructure to use this. So, I mean, homeless individuals, for example, if you're in dire straits living on the streets in poverty, right, you're not going to have ready access to masks and all kinds of infrastructure. You're not going to be able to uh, stay indoors, right, when we're, we're asked to stay at home mm. uh, and basically keep ourselves locked in. Mm. So a lot of these countries have been just physically unable to implement the lockdowns like we have been able to in Canada. And a lot of these countries, they seem to uh, be much closer to uh, getting back to normalcy than we are. Mm. So, so there is some evidence out there on the big, big picture level. But... It's all difficult to interpret. And now with the vaccines rolling out, it's also going to be hard to say how much of that is due to the vaccines, how much was it due to naturally acquired immunity. But that's again why some scientists are looking at places like India, where this was apparent well before. They just had a tiny fraction of their population vaccinated. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time these observations were being made. Mm. So certainly in countries like that, it does suggest that, you know, guess what? Like we've seen in the past, um, we we are designed to get through these kind of issues with the immune systems that we have. Right. Now, with that said, I want to highlight, David, I have zero problems with, with what we did at the beginning of the pandemic. The whole goal to flatten the curve and to implement strict lockdown policies made complete and utter sense to me as a scientist from the get-go. Why? Because we had no idea what we were dealing with. Right. This could have been like the Spanish flu pandemic of, of uh, 1918, right? And, and, if the, and, and, and in today's population numbers, then mm. we would be looking at uh, exponentially more deaths mm. worldwide. Mm. So we had to be careful, right? But we have failed to follow the science and work our way out of this pandemic mm. following the science. Mm. Right. Follow the science. Um, speaking of what you just said about the lockdown and going back to the beginning of this whole thing, um, it, it makes sense also to me to some degree that even if you look at how countries are are, are set up, and, and what I mean by that is here in Canada, of course, we have health care, which everyone is is uh, allowed to receive. Uh, that is different than in, in many parts of other parts of the world, including the United States, and that's of, often pointed out. And so if we were to open it up, uh, and our health system were to become overwhelmed with numbers of people uh, needing needing services, that could definitely be a, a negative and and like we said, a, a detrimental impact to our health system, which could Im- impact so many other things. Yeah, potentially, David. I, I agree, and that is that's exactly why everybody was in agreement with flattening the curve uh, originally. But again, it, I, I have to point out that the majority of cases now are are mild. Yes. And, and don't require hospitalization. So there's a couple of things. One of the things is um, some people, because there's been a lot of fear about this, right? A lot of fear being propagated. It's incredible how frightened some people are of this, mm. even if the science shows that they are in a very low risk demographic. Like I can't highlight enough um, with, with children. Mm. There's a lot of fear among parents, you know, and being very protective uh, about their children with respect to this and don't want to risk them at all getting COVID-19. But at the same time, but they don't care. Many of these same parents don't care about them getting influenza virus. Mm. But many of these parents will not get them vaccinated with the annual influenza virus. Many of them, when their children have clear signs of sickness in the middle of the flu season, send them to school anyways. We've mm. all seen that. If you mm. go into any school in Canada mm-hmm. in the middle of the winter, the amount of sickness that's there, the amount of coughing that's going on is is ridiculous, right? Mm. And that's often because, you know, um, People are working full time. They don't. They can't come up with childcare at the last second, and and so they get sent to school. Right? It is incredible how different it is. And yet, David, the the science also tells us very clearly, SARS coronavirus two is no more dangerous to our children than the influ- annual influenza virus that we deal with. In mm-hmm. fact, an argument can be made that the annual influenza virus may be more dangerous to young children. Um, we don't have a lot of them die, but we do have some of them die every year from the influenza virus. And guess what? We could probably stop those few deaths every year if we implemented these strict lockdowns every flu season. But as a society, right, it, I, I don't like to say, but as a scientist, I'm, I, I'm okay with just stating the facts, right? We do cost-benefit analysis, and we've decided as a society that there are a certain number of deaths that we will accept due to certain causes 
in exchange for a certain lifestyle that we want to live, right, as a society. Uh, that's just the reality. And one of those is we've decided that, you know, we will learn to live. We will live on an annual basis with the influenza virus, even though it also kills our seniors. Not Definitely, I will. there is no question, SARS coronavirus 2 is potentially more dangerous for our elderly than the annual flu. But the annual flu does also does also kill seniors. Mm. But the, what I'm pointing out is the annual flu also kills more children than mm. the SARS coronavirus too, right? So I just want to try and put things in perspective for people. And we live with this on an annual basis, right? Uh, maybe we'll use the example again of, of cars. I mean, so many Canadians die in motor vehicle accidents. Well, we've all shown that if we really want to try and push things to zero, that's the thing. We're not going to get cases of SARS coronavirus 2 infections down to zero. We could get, for example, motor vehicle accidents down to zero in Canada if we implement these same lockdowns, but for a different reason. Everybody stay in your home. Mm -hmm. Stay in your home. You're not using your vehicle. There will be no motor vehicle accidents. Mm -hmm. We need to start looking at this. And so, so David, one would argue, and uh, many physicians that I have talked to um, who, who find it hard to speak out, because it isn't towing the party line in many ways, um, have told me that they don't feel that our hospitals would be overwhelmed, right? Or that they are mm. being overwhelmed. Mm. Again, because a lot of the cases now are relatively mild. And the other thing is, if, if they were to get overwhelmed, of course, no problem. That Then people would understand, right? Again, that is empirical data that gives solid rationale for going into another lockdown, Right. If we see the data and clearly our hospitals are getting overloaded with cases of COVID-19, of course, nobody would have a problem. But but we're not seeing this. We're not seeing this data presented to us to suggest that. And the other thing, David, that I want to point out is, um, just like you brought up, a lot of people ask that question. Well, what if we what if we do try and work a, ways out, a way out of this and we, we start overwhelming our medical system? We have to understand that we are not properly looking after many Canadians who are dying from many other diseases, right? We've kind of lost focus mm. on the fact that cancers have continued to grow in, in mm. Canadians, right? Uh, Canadians continue to die from heart disease and from many other diseases, right, that we deal with on an ongoing basis. Mm. And as long as we keep these kind of policies in place, we have slowed down the delivery of medical services to all of these other Canadians who also deserve an equal shot mm. at life. Mm. It's like a lot of this damage is not going to come out for years to come because a lot of the diseases we're dealing with, heart disease, cancers, and these are very chronic diseases, right? They are long-term. It often takes years for people to ultimately succumb to these diseases. These have not been properly treated during this pandemic. There's no question about that. There is clear evidence. Uh, You can ask the, the average person that has been trying to deal with cancer, the number of people that have had their diagnostic tests put off for months mm-hmm. right cancer does not put itself on hold because mm-hmm. of this pandemic right. if somebody is diagnosed three months later than they otherwise would be cancer is always a race against time right. the, the the more severe the disease the less effective our treatments so we are going to see an increase but it, it, we might, might not see the spike on the charts for a lot of these diseases for years to come but we will see a spike in cancer-related deaths, deaths due to heart disease and so on. So one could actually make the reverse argument that one of the other reasons why we have to, with some urgency, 
get back to more normal lives is so that we can actually get properly care for all of the other medical conditions that are still going on in Canada. Right. Dr. Byron Bridal, such always a pleasure speaking with you. Fascinating uh, with all of the things that you brought up in our conversation today. And I will look very much forward to having you back on maybe in a few weeks time, because um, as you mentioned about following the science, I'm sure the science is going to be continuing to roll out and we'll have more to talk about in the near future. So if you're up for that, I would love to have you back on the show. I'm definitely up for it, David. You're absolutely right. The science is evolving at a very rapid pace, and we have to keep up with it. I'd be very happy to chat again in the future. And that is the voice of Dr. Byron Bridal. He is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. His research interests include developing a better understanding of how the immune system responds to viral infections, as well as designing immunotherapies for the treatment of cancers and infectious diseases. He's also passionate about teaching immunology and contributing to the training of Canada's next generation of researchers. You have been listening to a one-hour special with Dr. Byron Bridal, a returning guest here on Moment of Truth. If you missed part of this conversation and or any other of our interviews on Moment of Truth, you can catch them on our Element FM SoundCloud or on your favorite podcast listening platform. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.